Lord, send somebody else. Don't send me. I'm no good. Two or three weeks ago, um, my car failed the MOT. And I thought, oh, crumbs. Um, But fortunately, within a few days, everything was put right. Uh, A bit of part at the back had corroded. And I thought, yeah, a bit like me, my parts are corroding as well. But uh, it's a sign of age. But the more I thought about the MOT, the more I thought that perhaps in the way in which we're testing ourselves in this time of Lent, how well are we doing when we encounter God? Well, how well is my car doing on the road? And the more I thought about it, the more analogous the situation seemed to be. Here was the car, and the MOT inspector no doubt tested the lights. Were they shining brightly? Did they light the the road ahead? How good are our lights? How effective are the lights when it comes to seeing our road ahead when wanting to follow God? Do people out there see our lights? Do they see? Ah, yes. That person is a follower of Jesus. But I guess the MOT inspector looked at the brakes on the car. How will it held the road? Are we gripping the road? And so on. And I'm sure, if you think about it, the more... uh, ways of similarity, if you like, between testing the car and similarly testing us. But well, how well did Moses do? And if we remind ourselves of the, some of the, I mean, just a few of the events in Moses' life, remember he was born at a time when um, the Egyptians were getting a bit fed up with the Israelites. They were, the Israelites were becoming rather too numerous, too powerful, too influential. And so the decree went out from the pharaohs that any Israelite boys that were born um, must be thrown into the Nile. Before that, in fact, the Israelites had been denied the use of midwives, but the Israelite women were tough birds and uh, they delivered in spite of uh, the fact they didn't have any midwives. But as we know, of course, in Moses' case, um, his mother put the baby into um, a basket and uh, put it uh, in the bulrushes And he was found by a pharaoh's daughter. And with a bit of jiggery-pokery, it was arranged that the person who would be looking after him, his nanny in growing up, was in fact his own mother. And things were pretty good, tickety-boo, perhaps for a little while. But then when he was probably a teenager, um, he saw one day an Israelite being accosted by an Egyptian. He went up and he killed the Egyptian and thought no one had seen him. He looked around and reckoned he got away with it. Until the following day, someone, two people were fighting and he went up to them and tried to stop the fight. And they implied very clearly, we'd seen you fight yesterday, so no, we got it in for you. And he thought, therefore, okay, I must run away. And he ran away to the desert and Moses joined the Midianites, a group of sort of wandering minstrels almost with lots of sheep. And um, he married one and looked after the sheep of his father-in-law, Jethro. And again, everything was going pretty well for a little while. Um, But then one day, he encountered this burning bush, as uh, Sue reminded us. I guess you and I aren't going to encounter burning bushes at all. But nevertheless, at some point, perhaps, we recognize that maybe through somebody else, God is actually speaking to us. And remember what happened with Moses. Here he was, um, apparently with a strange tongue, again, said, whether it's true or not, it's another matter, that when he was very young, the pharaoh wanted to kill him and offered him either a ruby or a burning piece of coal. 
if the little three-year-old took the ruby, he'd be killed. If he took the burning coal, well, suffer the consequences. And it was said that he burned his tongue. And that's why, when asked whether he would take these, all these Israelites to the promised land, he said, I'm not a good speaker. I can't possibly. How can I lead all these people when I can't speak properly? And possibly that was a true point because he, he had his tongue burnt when he was three years old. But he made every excuse under the sun why he wasn't able to lead these people. But let's not forget, it's a pretty awesome job. We read there were 603,550 of these Israelites. I think the population of Linfield now is coming up to 10,000. Do you imagine 60, roughly 60 Linfields, and you're told by God to go and take all these people up to Newcastle or something? Um, it's a, even with British Rail, such as it is now, don't go through London Bridge, but it's a still a tough consignment. And here was Moses faced with this job that he was sure God wanted him to do. But eventually, as we know, yes, he agreed with Aaron, his brother's help, and he would do, do the job. But then, of course, the thought struck him, how am I going to get all these 603,000 people to actually follow me? Again, as Sue reminded us, um, God said to him, don't worry, here are three miracles you can perform. Do you remember? One was throwing your stick on the ground, it turns into a snake. The second one was putting your hand in your pocket, bringing it out, it will be leprous, put it back and it's all okay. And the third miracle was to take a pool of water and make it turn into blood. But of course, when that was fine for the Israelites, they thought, yes, God, these are miracles. Clearly God has spoken to Moses, we'll follow but when it came to the pharaohs, oh, no, no, my, my magicians, they can do that. So, no, no, we're not, we're not uh, in any way influenced by the fact you've taught, been taught by God. You must do something else. And God had to intervene. God had to sort things out to make quite sure. And he did it, as you'll remember, um, by producing these ten plagues. It's an exciting story. Do read it over lunch if you want to. Remind yourself of the plague of the gnats, the plague of darkness, and all the other plagues that there were. And perhaps, even up to this point, there are two lessons for us, aren't there? First of all, I wonder when God speaks through someone to you and to me, will you do a job? I don't mean take 603,000 people somewhere, obviously, but maybe a job in the church, maybe a job in the community. I wonder whether, when we're confronted by God in that way, do we argue? Do we all oh, think of any possible excuse? Or do we say, God, you'll, you'll enable me to do it. You'll, you'll give me the ability to do it. And then, well, I just wonder whether we're prepared to follow him or whether we really uh, just almost give up. But perhaps the second lesson, even so far, is God is in control, isn't he? He arranges things. He sorts it. He'll make sure that things work out according to his plan. Maybe not our plan, but he was going to make sure things would happen. He provided these three miracles for Moses to perform. Well, as you know, the story goes on and uh, the Red Sea parts to enable the um, Israelites to go through and then comes back again and uh, all the three or, three or 600 chariots of the Egyptians all get um, drowned and so on. And it's an exciting story. And as the Israelites go on their way towards the Promised Land, then comes a cake. They get more and more annoyed, frustrated. Why did you bring us here? You know, what's the point? Oh, it's a lousy place. We haven't got any food to eat. We haven't got any water to drink. 
and they persuade Moses to get from the rock um, some water, which, yes, um, he certainly does. And they carry on, but as you know, after a time, Moses gets called up the mountain, Mount Sinai, and he's spoken to by God, another encounter. Here he's being told the Ten Commandments, but he's 40 days and 40 nights up the mountain. And so by the time he comes down, the people are getting really annoyed, really frustrated, and they're really objecting. Even his brother Aaron, even Miriam, his sister, are saying, for goodness sake, and what on earth have you brought us here for? They're moaning like anything. And they build false gods. They query his leadership. He's a lousy leader. What on earth have you brought us out here for? And in the end, God has to intervene yet again. But eventually, as we know, they, just two of them arrive at the promised land. The rest, God says, no, no, you're not going to reach the promised land. But clearly, again, God is in control. If we think just for a moment about the passage from Hebrews that um, Sue referred to us, here was, as we said earlier, here was the writer of Hebrews trying to persuade everyone that clearly Jesus was greater than Moses. The writer of Hebrews, incidentally, no one knows to this day who it was. Um, well, the various thoughts, ideas, I'm going to be shot for saying this, but I think the writer was probably Aquila and Priscilla. Some theologians believe that to be true, and the reason that it wasn't made known was the fact that to suggest that these words had been written by a woman, Priscilla, in Corinth, oh, you know, that would have dismissed the whole thing, chuck it in the bin. Whether it was written by Aquila and Priscilla, we're really not sure. But Hebrews, I think such lovely words, dare I say, chaps, they could only be written by a woman, couldn't they? I'll be hit afterwards for saying that, but I'm sure... There's an element of truth in that. They are beautiful words about people's faith, about their ability to encounter, confront, and be confronted by God and still go forward following, in our case, Jesus. The writer produces a very cunning argument in the first few verses that, um, again, Sue reminded us of. Here was the argument that Jesus was greater than Moses. First of all, arguing that yes, there's a, if you like, an equality, roughly speaking, between God and Jesus, Jesus the Son of God. And then the argument that God is greater than the people. He looks down upon the houses and the people. They are, there's a gap between them. And therefore, QED, if Jesus and God are equated and God is greater than the people, then of course, clearly, Jesus must be greater than the people, including Moses as well. Oh, Moses was somebody great, but not as great, of course, as Jesus. And throughout this story, friends, and it helps us, I think, you know, at this time of Lent, when we're looking at ourselves, how good are we in following our Christian journey? It helps us, I think, to understand that people, even as great as Moses, that they had their problems, they had their doubts, their concerns. Moses never got to the promised land himself. He failed, perhaps you could argue. But perhaps to leave ourselves with two great messages. The first is that God is in control. He will perform his plan. He will ensure that his plan is carried out. We can look to him to save situations in the same way that he saved situations for Moses and all these rebellious people being led to the promised land. And secondly, in spite of God bringing wrath, yes, he does 
bring love. He is a God of love and peace. If you look at Hebrews 3 in verse 13, it says very clearly here, encourage one another daily. I'm not suggesting tomorrow morning we each ring up everybody else and encourage them. Obviously that would be stupid, but doesn't a word of encouragement go such a long way? Isn't it so important that when things don't go quite right, and this happens to all of us at one time or another, we are encouraged by somebody else. That's so important. But then we also end by, end by saying that God expects us to follow him, to obey when we possibly can. And there is part of the story we've missed out. If you have a Bible, I do invite you to turn to Numbers chapter 20. Remember we said earlier that in taking the Israelites to the promised land, they wanted food, they wanted water, and God provided that. But we've forgotten one important part. If you come to Numbers chapter 20, verse 2, let me read. Now there was no water for the community, and the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. They quarreled with Moses and said, If only we died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. Why did you bring the Lord's community into this desert, that we and our livestock should, should die here? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? Yet are no grain or figs, grapevines or pomegranates, and there's no water to drink. Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance to the tent of the meeting and fell face down, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord said to Moses, this is the vital bit, and the Lord said to Moses, take the staff and you and your brother Aaron, gather the assembly together, speak to that rock before their eyes and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so that they and their livestock can drink. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence, just as he commanded him. But he and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels, must we bring water out of the rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock. He didn't speak to the rock. He struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out, and the community and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust in me enough to honor me, as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. So yes, he is a God of love. He is in control. He does do things. But he does expect us to obey him in the way, if you like, that Moses did not. But God is with us. We can count on that in this time of Lent. And as we all look to the cross, what did the cross mean to Jesus? But it more particularly today, what does it mean to us? How do we react to the events of Good Friday and Easter Sunday? Amen.